2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead of us. The World Health Organization warns they see a spark that could become an even bigger fire with the coronavirus. We'll have the details and what doctors are saying could be done. Plus, travel and tech, retail and restaurants, autos and airlines. Look at how all of these industries are trying to minimize the impact of the virus, both in the short term and in the longer run. And as a deal for Victoria's Secret around the corner, should Tesla and Google get together? And the one all-purpose, indispensable stock will reveal what that is. We do begin with the markets, though, which are surprisingly resilient. With
3: all this going on, Simimoni has the numbers. And that's the big question. The market was able to overlook some big worries last week. Kelly, will that continue into this week? Right now, stocks are extending. Uh, last week's big gains We're up fractionally across the board with the NASDAQ up about six tenths of 1% technology, the second best performing sector. But take a look at the defense ETF. A new record high for this ETF, thanks to better-than-expected earnings from Lockheed Martin and Grumman over the past two weeks. You can see already this ETF ETF, is up about 7% so far this year. A lot of movement in the real estate investment uh, sector as well. Simon Property shelling out about $3.6 billion to take control of Taubman Centers, the operator of 26 shopping malls in the U.S. and Asia. The deal would pay Taubman uh, shareholders a 51% premium to its closing price on Friday, you can see that stock up 53% already today. Kelly, back to you. All right, Seema, thanks for now.
2: We begin with the very latest on the coronavirus and the massive impact it's having on industries and companies around the world. Our panel of reporters and experts is standing by today. Meg Terrell is here with me on what we know at this hour about the virus. Contessa Brewer is live in Chinatown with the travel impact. Josh Lipton has a look at how the supply chain is hitting tech companies. And joining us from his self-quarantine is Dr. Ian Lipkin, who consulted with the Chinese government on the coronavirus and caught one of the last flights back Before travel restrictions were put in place. Uh, Great to have all of you here. Meg, let's start
4: with you. And what do we know? Well, the numbers right now have topped 40,000 confirmed cases. The death count is at 910 Uh, over the weekend. That surpassed the number of deaths from the SARS outbreak in 2003, which was just under 800. The World Health Organization holding its daily press briefing this morning, noting that 99% of the cases are still in China. And for the most part, most of the cases are mild, about 20%, they say, um, are severe. They did point out something. They said in recent days they've seen uh, some concerning numbers in terms of pockets of human-to-human transmission uh, in France, in the UK, uh, where they said there wasn't travel history to China. Dr. Tedros, the director general of the World Health Organization, saying the detection of these small number of cases could be the spark that becomes the bigger fire. But for now, he said it's only a spark. And he said efforts need to be directed at containment. There's a window of opportunity to keep that from just being a spark and hopefully not a bigger fire.
2: You know, the the WHO itself had come under some criticism for how they've handled and labeled past epidemics or pandemics. How are they handling this one differently to be more careful about what they're saying? Because honestly, even reading a quote like that, to me, sounds a little bit like scaremongering. I know that's not their intent, but... I mean, if they're trying to catch everybody's attention in a good way to be careful, that's one thing. But how do they make sure this doesn't turn into a panic unnecessarily?
4: Well, they're certainly trying to be measured, uh, but they are trying to give people the most up-to-date information. And what they are saying is that could be concerning and that people need to act quickly to try to contain this where they can. They're trying to make sure that health systems are on alert, doing everything they can to to contain any potential spread. And in terms of next steps, tomorrow and Wednesday, they're convening a meeting of scientific experts from industry research uh, across the spectrum to try to establish a blueprint for research into diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines. They say this meeting is oversubscribed. And we've confirmed a number of companies that are going to be attending this, either in person or on the phone, uh, from that crop of companies we've been reporting who are working on this. Fascinating.
2: All right, we'll see if they can uh, come together for some solutions, make thanks. The impact on the travel industry has been huge, felt everywhere from land to air to sea. And Condessa Brewer is live in Chinatown in New York City with this piece of the story. Contessa?
5: Yeah, Kelly, last year, Chinese tourists spent $12 billion in the United States, according to the China Outbound Tourism Research Institute. $2 billion of that was spent right here in New York. So as you might imagine, those travel restrictions barring Chinese tourists from entering have had an immediate impact. We talked to E-World Tours, one of the busiest tour operators here in Chinatown. They said that 60% of their business comes directly from Chinese tourism. And so that has evaporated. And then it's not just Chinese tourists and their absence that is making a difference. Sino-American Tours relies mostly on the greater New York City area for its customer base. It says its business is down 10% year over year, largely because their tours to Hong Kong or Macau have been canceled, but also because there's just this general fear about coronavirus that's concerning travelers. In Chinatown itself, the fear is palpable and it's having an impact. We talked to one restaurateur who told me business is down 70% year over year. We see less uh, tourists, less locals coming to the restaurants and just looking at the street itself, it's really empty itself, it's like a ghost town. It hurts us, you know?
6: It came uh, like a curveball out of the blue uh, just before the beginning of the year and has socked us.
5: And uh, we saw a lunar New Year celebration here in New York City's Chinatown that was well attended, but nothing like it normally is. Still, they're thankful that it went on because in Miami, for instance, there was a celebration that was entirely canceled because so many vendors had expressed concerns over coronavirus. The real question is now, how long does this linger? How far does the impact go? Because, for instance, Eworld world Tours told us they're no longer sending tours to Las Vegas or Niagara Falls. Because the Chinese tourists are, just are not here to support it, Kelly. Contestant, not to
2: mention there's been a lot of criticism about how the cruise industry has handled passengers on its quarantine ships, including
5: the one that docked uh, in Bayonne over the weekend. And yet I have to point out the CDC said those four passengers who were taken off do not have coronavirus. Right. They had the flu. But at this point, the heightened concern is palpable, and they're taking every precaution to make sure that passengers stay safe.
2: Yeah. All right, Contessa, we appreciate it. Thank you, Contessa Brewer. Now to tech, which the market is watching closely and where the coronavirus is disrupting the heart of electronic manufacturing. Josh Lipton has the latest. And Josh, these headlines on Foxconn have been pushing us around uh, in terms of, you know, even the Dow, the Nasdaq and the S&P today.
7: Yeah, that's right, Kelly. So Apple investors are clearly focused on Foxconn, and for good reason. That is the largest manufacturer of Apple devices. Reports suggesting that its factory in Zhengzhou is back open for business, but that only 10% of workers have returned. Still, that is important because this plant is described as the most critical iPhone production site. It's located only a couple hundred miles from the epicenter of the outbreak in Wuhan. And Reuters now says that another important Foxconn plant in Shenzhen is coming back on Line to resuming partial production tomorrow. China is also a key consumer market for the company. Apple operates 42 stores there. Now, beyond Apple, what does this virus mean for semis? That's another question for investors. It really does depend on the length and breadth of the outbreak, but analysts do estimate China is responsible for about 35 percent of chip sales and perhaps 30 percent of semi consumption. Kelly, back to you.
2: Okay, Josh, thanks. We'll continue to watch those headlines closely. Our Josh Lipton. For more now, I'm joined by Dr. Ian Lipkin. He's director for the Center- Center for Infection and Immunity at Columbia Mailman School. Uh, doctor, it's great to see you. I, I know you've worked with the Chinese government during the, and the WHO during the 2003 SARS outbreak and that you're under self-quarantine right now because you could, just got back from China last week. Um, what did you see on the ground? Because you couldn't even get to the epicenter of this, could you?
8: No, if I'd gone to Hubei province, uh, it really would have been much more difficult to get out. No, um, I was in Guangzhou and Beijing, but with meetings with people from the national CDC, the Guangzhou CDC, scientists from all over the country with whom I met in Guangzhou and in Beijing. The cities are deserted, as you might imagine. Uh, All the stores are closed. It's daunting just to go through activities of daily living. And as you said in the earlier two segments, this has had enormous impact on manufacturing.
2: And we look, uh, most importantly, at just how deadly this virus is. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's more transmissible, it spreads more quickly than SARS did, uh, but it's less deadly, is that right?
8: So there are many different ways of looking at it. Let me try to break it down. Um, We have a mortality rate for SARS and for MERS. Uh, We know that for MERS, it was uh, much higher than for SARS. This one appears to be less deadly than was either MERS or SARS. We don't actually have official mortality rates because we haven't fully defined the denominator. To do that, we need to use antibody tests so that we can figure out who might've been infected but not manifested signs of disease or been characterized with a polymerase chain reaction test, the nucleic acid test that they're now using for discerning who's infected. My, uh, My estimate, you know, which is obviously speculative at this point, is that the actual mortality rate is going to be substantially lower, probably less than one percent. Now, to put this in perspective, we have six hundred and fifty thousand to three hundred thousand people who die annually of influenza. This uh, epidemic thus far has cost nine hundred lives. So it's not nearly as challenging for us as influenza. On the other hand, it's a new virus, we don't know much about it, right. and therefore all concerned to make certain that it doesn't evolve into something even worse.
2: The difficulty here is trying to understand how much the Chinese know about it and how much they're telling us, and if, that, if they're being fully transparent. So for instance, if, if this you think will have less than a 1% mortality rate, perhaps a less deadly than even the flu, as you've, as you've said, the normal seasonal flu, why are we seeing video of these quarantine squads in China dragging people from their homes throwing them into these ambulance type vehicles, taking them away, you know, to hospitals which have rows and rows of bodies. I mean, the the images and the reaction there don't jibe with what you're describing.
8: Well, I think you're referring to in somewhat um, pejorative terms. Uh, And I would ask to step back from that for just a moment. There is this new virus. We don't know much about its transmissibility. We don't necessarily have accurate diagnostic tests. And we don't really know where the outbreak is going to go. The only thing we have at present, absent vaccines or drugs, is containment. And so people are being very aggressive about containment. Now, with respect to transparency, there are two aspects to that. Are they sharing everything they know? And are the other questions, how much do they know? So I'm working on the scientific and public health aspects of this. I can tell you that there is a lot that we don't know. So what may be taken as lack of transparency, maybe in fact ignorance of what's actually going on. And over the next weeks, we will have a much better handle on that. So we are working very closely with them, trying to improve their diagnostic tests and find ways in which we can better define who is infected and who's not. Those pictures are absolutely horrific. I agree with you. I just don't know that there's any alternative other than containment. And if people refuse to participate voluntarily in containment, um, then, uh, you know, I guess there are some measures that, you know, we, we would like not to see. But I don't have any solution for that other than containment at present.
2: So finally, doctor, are you going back to China once your self-quarantine ends? Or are you going to stay here and assist how you can?
8: Um, I am sending staff back over there again next week, and I anticipate I'll be going over again, with certainly within the next month. There's an enormous amount to do, uh, and the suffering is, its you know, it's impossible to explain.
2: All right, Dr. Ian Lipkin, thank you for your time today. We, we greatly appreciate it.
8: I appreciate your support.
2: And for more on the coronavirus, tune in to CNBC's special report, Outbreak Coronavirus, will be live tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And here's what else is still ahead on The Exchange.
8: Coming
9: up. The stock market seems to be waving off any fears of a coronavirus impact. But it continues to be a big subject during earnings calls. Are investors underestimating the fallout? Plus, the name that some are saying is the market's indispensable all-purpose stock. And could Tesla be a good acquisition for Google? This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's
10: on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, Today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. a leading global asset manager.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. Since the initial shock of the coronavirus outbreak, the major averages have all recovered from their worst losses and then some. In one tumultuous month, the Dow is up 1 percent, the S&P up 2 percent, and the Nasdaq up over 4 percent. But the view from the bond market is starkly different. Over the past month, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note has plummeted by 15 percent to just about 1.55 percent. So are stocks underestimating the coronavirus impact? To the global economy. Let me bring in John Augustine. He's chief investment officer of Huntington Private Bank and Quincy Crosby is chief market strategist at Prudential Financial. And it's great to have you both here. Quincy, is there a, a divide in what these two major markets are telling us?
11: Well, the, well, there is. Technically, there is. But you have to look for the reasoning. Why is money has been pouring into the treasury market, obviously, along with gold, as a safe haven move and so that obviously pushes the yields down but even before that as long as you have negative interest rates in the eurozone as japan is trying to push the ten-year up to zero the money is going to be coming into the u.s. regardless of this extra fear trade that's an interesting point so john in other words if money's coming into the u.s. it can both
2: push our bond yields lower and push our stock prices higher at the same time right and this is just a recent example of this trend which is a decade plus in the making
6: yeah, no, and you're right, Kelly, and the dollar's caught in the middle there to, to echo what Quincy was talking about. So we've seen the dollar move up slightly. So we don't think stock market's getting ahead of itself. We think actually there's extra buyers in the bond market, and that's what we're seeing right now.
2: So where would you be positioned, John? Uh, wh- what would your advice be to investors?
6: Well, first off, you're going to have to be patient, just as we did through SARS 2002-2003. Second off, there is going to be a pause. We, we don't know yet how to handicap the pause in economic earnings, or excuse me, in economic activity or earnings for companies, but we know that's going to be coming out over the next couple of weeks. Our economic and equity team are watching that. What we did do, Kelly, was earlier this year, pre-coronavirus, we actually moved up our weightings to large cap growth and developed international. Those were two spaces we saw where returns were coming from, okay. and we wanted our clients to participate. So we're still there.
2: Yeah, and those are, those are not uh, secret parts of the market either, especially no. large-cap growth no. stocks. Uh, absolutely stalwarts leading us uh, higher and higher. Quincy, would you be in those strategies as well, or, or how would you play uh, the markets here.
11: I like domestic right now, mainly because we don't know how this, how long that this is going to last. We call it the duration. So you want to be be safe. You may want to have some money in treasuries, money in gold, and if treasuries are going to go down, utilities, which had been overbought, still getting a bid. But but the other thing is the dollar, as as just mentioned, the dollar was trading at the lower band of its trading range. And that helped emerging markets. It, it helped international. The Dixie just hit 99. And, and, and the question is, does it continue to rise, it, defying expectations? Sure. That is a negative for emerging markets and it's a negative for international. So maybe we would hold off. And also for emerging markets, they need China to turn the corner. Uh, they they get 20 to 30 percent of their supplies. Those who sell to China, you have a stronger dollar, Mm -hmm. even though China needs the beef and it needs the pork and the soybeans. But overall, I think it's going to become very attractive. I think the dollar will weaken if the Fed, Jerome Powell, even suggests we may see a rate cut. Okay. And that would uh, reinforce what the Fed funds futures market is saying. Sure. It could weaken the dollar. So
2: in other words, you're saying to people kind of watch the dollar here. Don't do anything until or unless it it weakens a little bit and then maybe look for some opportunities. John, we've had a couple of guests in the last few weeks talk about uh, buying Chinese stocks. In fact, buying Luckin Coffee, for example. I mean, there's been uh, a lot of pressure on names like that. Uh, Would you look at I mean, you mentioned developed international stocks. Where where would you be placing your money outside of the U.S.?
6: So primarily we'd be in Europe. In Asia, as Quincy talked about, we just don't know the hit there yet. We don't know the economic hit. We know 35% of the emerging market index is based in China. Actually, we've been impressed by the resilience of that index recently. We would not be located directly in China. We would be going more with active managers in emerging markets. But for now, we would favor really... Uh, not staying out of, but being more or less benchmark, slightly less than benchmark in emerging markets, baby step in, as Quincy talked about, as we see how other things develop. Because 2003 was a good year for emerging markets after SARS cleared. We hope, we hope the same comes true here.
2: All right. Thank you both. We appreciate it today. John Augustine and Quincy Crosby. Coming up, why this stock has become critical to the market, the name, and what makes it so important are ahead. Plus, L Brand's wings may soon get clipped, but the stock is taking flight. We'll have the latest of the company's Victoria's Secret brand nearing a sale. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go, no matter where you are or when it is, on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. The cat sat Back to the exchange. Here are some of the movers this hour. Look at shares of Casper sliding after closing higher by 12% on the IPO day. The stock was down 18% on Friday. Is down another 6% now and it's below its IPO price of 12, hovering just around $10.36 a share. Meantime, shares of Lyft are jumping after an upgrade to buy at North Coast Research and a price target of $60. Lyft is up 23% lately and is scheduled to report earnings after the bell tomorrow, adding nearly 7% today. Roku also higher after positive comments from analysts the DA Davidson That firm saying consumers staying home due to the coronavirus could be a boost. Roku climbing more than 6% today. Shares of restaurant brands higher after reporting better than expected earnings as well. The company saying Popeye sales jumped 42% due to that famous chicken sandwich. That's a 2% gain for QSR. And Slack jumping more than 15% today. A new report says that IBM will be moving its entire workforce of 350,000 employees to use the messaging service. That is a 16% percent gain for ticker work. Now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Sue. Thank you, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Attorney
10: General William Barr expressing his outrage at the attempted assassination of two New York City police officers over the weekend.
14: I'd recently been up there to visit with the NYPD, and that is a force that does exceptional work for the people of New York. And I want them to know uh, that they have the full support of uh, this administration and this Department of Justice.
10: A judge dealing a blow to Michael Avenatti's attempts to limit his testimony if he testifies at his New York City extortion trial. He ruled that allegations of lies and deceit involving past clients are highly relevant. Avenatti's attorney says whether his client testifies would depend in part on the judge's decision. And a storm battering northern Europe with hurricane-force winds and heavy rains, killing at least six people and causing severe travel disruptions across the continent today. In Poland, a woman and her 15-year-old daughter died after that storm ripped off the roof of a ski rental equipment building. You are up to date. That's the news update,
2: Kel. I'll send it back to you. Sue, thank you so much. Sue Herrera. Don't go anywhere. Here's what's right ahead of us on The Exchange.
9: Ahead... The secret may be out. Is L Brands getting ready to sell its Victoria's Secret brand? A controversial op-ed. Should Google buy Tesla? Plus, how bad could it get for Hilton as the coronavirus continues to weigh on travel? And the indispensable stock. It's all coming up on The Exchange.
2: Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple of stories that should be on your radar as well today. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Courtney Reagan, Robert Frank, and we welcome back Seema Modi. Uh, first up, L Brands is apparently nearing a deal to sell Victoria's Secret to private equity firm Sycamore Partners. For more, let's bring in CNBC.com business reporter Lauren Hirsch. Come on down, girl. Uh, okay. You broke this story. I did. And it sounds like the sale is imminent. And this is, is it going to be the end of Victoria's Secret or does Sycamore think they can, you know, re- revive it, so to speak? So
12: Sycamore is a really interesting firm. I don't know how familiar you guys are with it. Courtney, your retailer, what are you remember when they bought Staples? Yeah. The hmm. thing about Staples is a lot of private equity firms passed on that deal because it, it seemed kind of out of date. Who goes to Staples anymore? Sycamore had this vision. Hey, they still have this wonderful B2B business. We'll buy it for this business and then deal with the retail business. Obviously, Victoria's Secret
2: isn't exactly. Now, wait. Is that working for Staples first? It of all? appears
12: to be. Really? And, and I will say in 2018, they, they raised a huge fund, their largest yet. So they're really known for being creative and strategic. Now, I don't think they're buying Victoria's Secret for its business, business to, to business. business angle. I hope not. Um, but I would suspect they have a non obvious angle in. The interesting history they have is they actually bought the sourcing business that used to be part of Limited Brand, which was L Brand's okay. predecessor. So they have some history there. They've used that sourcing brand to build up its retail business. I suspect they have a very non-obvious Kind of entryway. You know, it,
2: it is fascinating to reflect for a moment, L Brand stock four years ago was around $100 a share. It's down to 25 mm-hmm. Victoria's Secret four years ago still felt like it was mainstream. Yeah. And now they, they canceled the last fashion show. Mm-hmm. There's been total outcry, probably long overdue to some extent over, you know, who is this aimed at and what is the product for? And then you had this analyst call last week that said Nike is redefining sexy because they're body conscious and their mm. show was more inclusive and Courtney, I don't know. It, it just The fashion moment has completely changed, and I wonder what Victoria's Secret will have to do to become relevant again. So that's
15: a really good point. I think I've brought this up on the show before, Kelly, and this may be an unpopular thing to say, so I'm trying to be careful about how I say it. But it's very hard to rebrand a company. So I'm not saying that Victoria's Secret message is the right one for what today's women want. But I think it's pretty hard to take Victoria's secret and turn it into an unsexy brand and be successful. I just don't know that you can do that well. Now, Lauren's point is great that Sycamore is creative and that its founders come up with some interesting ways to do things. So I am really looking forward to what that means. But as far as the Victoria's Secret brand, how do you how do you change that? Like you can that is the brand's DNA is sexy. And if that's not popular with consumers I would like Robert to reflect a moment yeah. on why unsexy yeah, no. is the new sexy, Robert. did well, <laughs> <laughs> you get what I'm saying?
2: I, 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 <laughs>
16: I, 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 I agree in. with Courtney. I think it's really difficult when you've gone so far in that direction yep. and then sort of change direction totally. But the other interesting part of it is how much of the whole Epstein sort of New York Times exposé where there's all this cloud around the company from a moral perspective. Great point. As a woman, sure. do you, even if they kind of change the image, mm-hmm. there's just so much stuff around it that as a woman, do you ever want to patronize this company again? And maybe that's a small group, but I think that's an issue.
12: It's a great question. I can tell you a couple of things. One is, you know, pressure for Victoria's Tea Grid and Bath and & Body Works, which L. Brands also owns. There's been pressure for the two of them to split before. As you know, sure. they were... They had different trajectories well before the Epstein stuff came out, and as part of the deal negotiations, Wexner may or may not step down. So it'll be interesting to may see. May or may not. I, you gotta, he's you in ta- I mean, he's, he's in talks too, and he's considering it. But you know, you know, you got to figure work. he's right. out, right? You got to figure they out. It's a safe bet. It. Yeah. It's a safe bet. But you wonder if that solves the problem.
2: Are you hearing before we move on anything else about whether they view mall-based, uh, you know, retail footprint as an asset or as uh, I, they can't be reinventing the wheel altogether if they're going to make money on this, right?
12: Well, there is real estate, and I don't honestly know the exact—I don't know how much is company owned— um, a but thousand? There is,
16: what, over a thousand stores? They're wow. They've, every, got, it. Yes, they've, they've got, got to bring places. that
2: down. And
12: I'm sure, I would, I don't know for sure, it's likely, you know, having covered retail, it's safe to assume it would make sense for them to do that.
2: To, to keep the stores or to whittle them to down? To whittle
12: it down. And they have been whittling
2: and it would make sense to further whittle. Right. Uh, it's going to be a uh, fascinating one to watch. We appreciate it. Lauren, thank you thank so you much. Like I said, I'm kicking you off. All right. <laughs> uh, next up, Hilton is set to report Q4 earnings before the bell tomorrow. And they're the first major hotel operator to report since the deadly coronavirus virus outbreak in China. It could be a rough go because China, SEMA, was Hilton's fastest growing market last year. So just when they had made a decision uh, to double down here, a big setback, it would seem.
3: Yeah. And we have industry data that already shows a 75 percent decline in hotel occupancy in the mainland uh, over the pa- over the last two weeks in January. So now the question is, to what extent has that hurt Hilton's operations on the ground there? So that will certainly be a topic of conversation with CEO Chris Nassetta on the earnings call tomorrow. Most analysts expect Hilton to guide lower, so to bring down their 2020 guidance. And that will likely be the same for Intercontinental and Marriott as well, because to your point, China has been the fastest growing market for all of these hotel operators. They're trying to really uh, capitalize on this growing millennial audience. And also, China also becoming a bigger destination for tourists in general. It's not just outbound, it's Americans, Europeans going to China to really visit the country. And Because of that, all these US operators have been building out their footprint there to captivate.
16: But Seema, explain to me, none of these stocks seem to be acknowledging any of this. I mean, if you look at these stocks since the coronavirus first became public, I mean, they're basically flat
2: they're having the market really overall down. you're right but especially
3: the but hardest especially hit But yeah. especially so, hotels
16: i mean it yeah. just makes no sense to me so here's me. the
3: thing even though china is the fastest growing market for most of these hotel operators they still make about half of their revenue here in north america right. so that will also be a big question for hilton has but the north america even before just affected this china but also us and european sales that will be a big question right but even as before
16: well. this north american market was was fairly weak i mean mm-hmm. it had a weak 2019 and you look at the Chinese tourism coming to here, Asian tourists coming here. I mean, it's all a big flow. It's not like, well, we can sort of isolate this one market. China is not huge, so therefore the U.S. won't be affected. I mean, it just strikes me as these stocks should be reacting more, especially if we could see some surprise in the earnings guide.
3: And the options market is uh, predicting a 6% move in Hilton's Hmm. stock, either up or down, depending on what we get on earnings. So let's see, to your point, maybe we'll see the price action after earnings come out tomorrow.
15: I just sort of wonder, we talk a lot about this being a temporary disruption, and so if you're a hotel operator and you lose that stay, does it get made up? Does that business trip come back? Do people re Schedule vacations or is it lost altogether? Right. Be right? one thing
2: if you Manufacturing
3: said, well, it seems like it's delayed. Right. Or if but you said, hotels, okay, I'll I'm go in the
2: sure. fall, but you might say, I'm not going to go to China for a few more years now, right. or maybe right. it's not a good idea to take my family there, period. And
3: sentiment is a hard thing to assess. There's no little metric, right, to gauge mm. how the American consumer is feeling Twitter. about traveling right now. I just talked to my mom and see what she says, but uh, <laughs> she is very scared. But I was no, saying, well, I'm so, saying. So
2: the mom indicator she's a no-go to China? No,
3: no way. But again, that is not the uh, I don't know. <laughs> moms
15: moms
2: are, have good I indicators for a lot of things. And yeah. Midwest
15: moms are are good for a lot of things. When so I, when she gets
2: comfortable again, we want back. we want Do the we exclusive. Uh, <laughs> how about this, a controversial new op-ed in Forbes today on Tesla, the magazine laying out a scenario for Google to acquire the company. Forbes is arguing that if Google acquired Tesla for $1,500 a share, $1,500, the value of the two combined companies could exceed $2.5 trillion. They're saying that would be a win-win for both, and benefits would include a huge increase to Tesla's scale and a fresh way for Google to grow its revenue stream. Tesla, which has just been gangbusters lately, up 2% today.
16: Look, it's a fun stock fantasy to talk about, (laughs) Uh, but the only thing crazier than buying this company for what would be $270 billion. Wow is the idea that Elon Musk would work for anybody, number one. And number two, that he would work for a CEO that doesn't control the parent company. That's controlled by Sergey and Larry. So you've got all these layers of Elon working for somebody, which is impossible. And then, I mean, he can barely work for himself. Robert, yeah, Robert the easy
2: solution is just put him in charge of Google or put him in charge of Alphabet. Well, that that would what be guaranteed that we would
16: see some <laughs> volatility in Alphabet stock. I don't know which way.
2: Also, reportedly, Google had looked at buying Tesla when its market cap was around, f- or the, the offer would have been about $5 right. billion.
16: They didn't like it at five, but you'll love it at 270. <laughs> right.
2: I mean, <laughs> that is either the biggest missed opportunity of all time, or, I mean, Tesla also comes up a lot in speculative takeover discussions, just like Twitter used to.
15: I could see the benefits for the software the benefits to Tesla from Google's influence, but totally agree with what Robert was saying. I thought there's no way Elon Musk is going to work for anybody else. So the story doesn't even make sense. (laughs) And and you
16: could see how it makes sense for Google as well. That's what I mean. Yeah, 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 it makes sense
15: for Google, but for Tesla and not for
2: Elon. Well, um, the only thing I'd say to this as a code is I didn't realize that Forbes took such hot stances on on issues like this. Um, The other thing too quickly for Google is that I could see it making sense in terms of a new business line. Obviously, Waymo's done a lot, but... I, synergy wise i mean could you see some compelling case robert for so the, google needing this the compelling this line case of is
16: that if we look at tesla further out as a data collection company as you look at a company that is right now gathering all this data on all of its cars more than any other car company and eventually that translates into autonomous google google's ability to both co-collect data hmm. At the same time, and to use that data, that would be a two plus two equals five, I think. Mm-hmm. But it just, you know, the personalities are not going to let it. Yeah,
2: or equals two and a half trillion. <laughs> uh, exactly. Interesting. All right. Finally, before we go, Parasite made history at the Academy Awards last night by becoming the first foreign language film to ever win Best Picture. They also took home awards for Best International Feature, Original Screenplay, and Director. Uh, but it didn't just clean up at the ceremony. The film behind the move, uh, studio behind the film, and Entertainment and Arts is publicly traded, and shares jumped 19% on this win. They trade on the South Korean Stock Exchange. Just a fun little coda. Had they run up into the into the Oscars or was a so. surprise? I believe so. I think this
3: is all being captivated today on this one day stock performance. But in general I mean it's great to see these international forum films get that level of recognition at the Oscars versus these smaller sort of is there movie, big, movie festivals like, like Sundance.
2: I mean I'm now treating Seema like she's the expert on South Korean filmmaking <laughs> but is, is there a big industry there that has potential for other you know, or is this kind of a one off?
3: Uh, I believe it's growing from what I read today uh, but in general in Asia I mean I can speak to Bollywood in India. The right. largest cinema player uh, you know <laughs> you're starting to see a lot more content come, not just out of uh, these Asian markets, but also demand increase here in North America for these types of Did anyone of
16: here actually watch Parasite? I did. Parasite? I did. Was it good? Yeah, I it
3: you was, say the Oscars.
16: It you was, saw
15: Parasite? Parasite was very good. Don't want to ruin it for anyone that hasn't seen it. It um, it has a little bit of everything. It's, it's kind of a comedy. It's sort of a drama. It's kind of a thriller, and the end just really catches you by surprise. Do you think it, it deserved Best picture? I, I do. I do. My husband and I both actually thought it was really, really good, and we, and we thought it could definitely be a contender. At the last minute, I picked 1917 because I thought probably more <laughs> people have seen it. If you're an academy voter, maybe you're more likely to go to the English language because a foreign was film this was never just
2: won. Is an unofficial bet thing that you had going, or because now there's you no, know. this
15: the CNBC Oscar Bowl. That we I all didn't even know
2: Kelly, about it. I'm every year, anyway, being <laughs> left out. Anyway, but anyway, uh, my final. Did anybody here watch the Oscars? I'm guessing you did. Yes, then. I watched I, all of the it. Beginning. I watched the, the one
16: 20. moment where Martin Scorsese was falling asleep for Eminem, and that was worth the entire <laughs> night for me. <laughs> that was that was
15: gold.
2: I love Eminem. Anyway, cool. thank you all today, Thanks. Courtney, Robert, and Sema. Coming up, the nation's doctor shortage is expected to climb to 122,000 by 2032. And the Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA, they're certainly not immune from this. We're going to take a look at a new program designed to help them uh, with caring for the country's millions of veterans. As we head to break, take a look at shares of Alphabet, speaking of, and Amazon, both hitting all-time highs today as the trillion-dollar club continues to grow. We'll be right back. The tight labor market is affecting industries across the country, and the Department of VA, the Veterans Affairs, is no exception. The agency, which is tasked for caring for the nation's 19 million veterans, currently has more than 3,000 job openings on USAjobs.com. Now they range from custodians to HR and, of course, to primary care physicians. Kate Rogers has a look at a new program that could help stem this
0: bleeding. Kate? Hey, Kelly, that's right. We went to Harvard to meet med student Seamus Carraher, who feels the weight of caring for the nation's veterans.
2: When someone lets you know that they, you know, put the flag on their shoulder and join the military for our country, I think you feel even that extra little bit of desire to make sure that you're there for them.
0: Before arriving at Harvard, Caraher and two of his undergraduate classmates envisioned a shadowing program for aspiring doctors at VA medical centers. They took their idea to Capitol Hill, where it became a bill. It's now known as the Vet HP Act. The VA is working to offer expanded care to veterans beyond just that bill with the Mission Act, which offers vets the ability to seek care outside of the VA system. The VA says that it's helped 1.7 million vets obtain care since 2018, but more doctors are needed nationwide
9: our biggest challenge is to to find um, those doctors and nurses out there who would be happy coming to work with us.
0: Now, the VA has reported as many as 49,000 vacancies, but is just 3,000 workers short of full staff in Kelly per congressional appropriations. Kate, hey, come on over. You know, it strikes me this
2: is the second, I think, doctor or, yeah, doctor shortage story that you've done this year. So. I can only imagine if, the, if it's hardest in you know, the top paying hospitals and all the most lucrative to get doctors that it just makes it that much more difficult for the VA.
0: Certainly in rural areas in particular. We did go out to Arizona earlier this year in the fall and we talked about the shortage that they're facing. But you said this earlier, more than 120,000 projected doctors short by the year 2032. And there are a few different things at play here. Obviously, the nation's living longer the, the age of doctors, they're also aging out of doing those roles because they're also retiring. So the doctor shortage that's impacting all of us is also impacting the VA. So that's where the Mission Act comes in, lets them seek care outside of the VA hospital system. But if there aren't enough doctors, right. particularly in rural areas, I mean, some places you hear thousands of residents and just one PCP available. Uh, so this is a really big issue. This really creative program from this young med student at Harvard uh, awaits a vote in the Senate. So that could be one way yeah. to help solve this but
2: because you don't want them to to scrimp on training i mean this is no. one area where you got to kind of go the conventional route to bring more to market kate thanks so much thank you kate rogers coming up being a ceo is a different ball game today as the world gets smaller and threats like coronavirus get bigger faster as a result we'll take a closer look at what it takes to lead a global company when your supply chain gets upended that's next Welcome back. China trying to contain the coronavirus outbreak as cases continue to explode there. Many factories remain closed, putting pressure on the global supply chain. If this outbreak has shown us anything, it's that this globally integrated world is one of the biggest challenges CEOs face today. In fact, that's the cover story of this week's The Economist, which explores what it takes to be a CEO in this decade. Joining me now is Vijay Vaithasvaren. He's The Economist, U.S. business editor. It's great to have you. And your point about CEOs is much larger than this, but this is emblematic, is it not, of how much more difficult the role has gotten?
14: Every generation of CEOs thinks it's never been as hard as it is for us now. I'm sure they do, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But there are some distinct challenges now, and one of them certainly is grappling with a new uh, manner of globalization. For 30 years, globalization was taken for granted. Supply chains just grew longer and products got cheaper. You just sourced where it was 2% cheaper each year. But what's happened is, uh, and even before the coronavirus, Uh, we began to uh, Mm deglobalize. Even before President Trump with his uh, tariff war, we began to see the supply chains were beginning to uh, rearrange themselves for uh, business and economic reasons. And so uh, CEOs and boards had to deal with, hey, it's not just cheap China anymore. Uh, Do we think about Mexico? Do we think about regionalization? In part because of innovation. In a a way, what you're saying
2: is that it would have been easier in the past to just make a cost-driven decision. Exactly. And they can just say, hey, it's cheaper. We'll sign off on that. And now the it's, mu- it's much no, more subject risk-driven. to discretion, right, or risk-driven. And how right. do you balance whether you should be in Vietnam versus Bangladesh versus Mexico or That's what have That's right. You?
14: And one of those risks we now see, of course, is, is a disruptive event like a coronavirus, but it could be natural disasters. We've seen Icelandic volcanoes, floods in Thailand. There are other kinds of risks that have disrupted the supply chains. So this is now a board-level, CEO-level challenge.
2: You have deep experience in China. You lived there for how long? About six years. Okay. What do you think about the outbreak, the way the Chinese government has handled it? You know, at the beginning of the hour, we spoke with a doctor who, who admitted that, it, as it appears, these quarantine squads are going house to house and pulling people out of their homes in some cases. Is that an example of China's ruthlessness working to protect public health? Um, or is it just that this entire episode uh, indicates some of the weakness of the Communist uh, Party and, and the economy there? What do you think about how it's all played out?
14: So when we think about it from the business Uh, mindset. Uh, Typically what economists do is they look at the last story. They study SARS. They say, well, we know that by and large these kinds of outbreaks tend to have a short-term effect after a quarter, maybe even a bit of a rebound. So most economic forecasts are pretty relaxed when they look at global economy. Um, I think this time is different in a couple of ways. One, the nature of this virus itself is still unknown. We don't know the numerator or the denominator when people are talking about infection rates. There are a lot of people out there who have not been tested or are asymptomatic. So that's the first point is the numbers coming out of China we have to be a little bit careful with. It could be more widespread. And secondly, when they actually uh, go back to work, there's reports at Foxconn's factory in Shenzhen. I visited that mega factory. Uh, It's very impressive. A lot of iPhones are made there. Workers sleep eight to a room. And so when they come back and some proportion of them are going to have coronavirus it's very likely to spike again in not only Foxconn but other factories this is one of the concerns that we may see a spike when these draconian measures are eased the second reason for worry is that these measures are unprecedented as you point out sometimes they can be almost seem inhumane but right. they're doing it with the good intent uh, on behalf of the world to contain the virus.
2: Well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, so right. to speak.
14: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that they are taking effective measures. We don't have a vaccine yet. We don't have a cure. Now, they should have done it six or eight weeks earlier, rather than suppress the truth, punish the doctors that wanted to speak out, right? We can. Uh, that's certainly true. But uh, these measures, can, you know, you can defend them at this point. But, but unfortunately, the, the, the measures themselves are having a strong economic impact that hasn't been factored into the models. And the third thing to think about is that Uh, the panic, the fear of the virus, in part because of scenes like people being dragged out of their house, uh, is leading to a reaction. For example, you might say, what does a Mobile World Congress in Europe have anything to do with China? Well, many companies are pulling out. Absolutely. And so we're going to see knock-on economic effects, confidence effects.
2: So longer lasting than in SARS. I think think that's the danger. Vijay, thanks so much. It's good to to speak with 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 you. you. Of course, we'll be reading more to get your perspective. Vijay Vaithasvaran from The Economist. Coming up, Take a look at this chart. The stock up more than 70 percent has become indispensable to the market. We'll tell you its name and what makes it so important. Stick around.
9: Deeper data at CNBC. New construction plans for non-residential buildings fell 2.7 percent in January, breaking a four-month streak of gains. Still, reports were up 7 percent from a year ago.
2: Welcome back to the exchange. Microsoft hitting an all-time high again today, and that's helping lift the Nasdaq to new highs as well. The stock's turnaround has had a lot to do with a shift in strategy that many others have followed, software as a service. Mike Santoli joins me now from the New York Stock Exchange. Mike, it seems like a can't-lose uh, approach here. It's working for Adobe. It's working for Microsoft, for Salesforce. Maybe they're a little bit different, but you name it, can a story simply be this good?
1: Uh, It can be this good, I think, as the fundamental driver and premise for why people are so enthusiastic about Microsoft. Although uh, I do think there's also an element of crowding and hiding into areas of the market and areas of tech that seem... Uh, less at risk to some of the big scary macro stuff out there, right? Whether it's China exposure directly or it's the semiconductor cycle or anything else macro. So I think you could have a great fundamental story, and Microsoft clearly does, right. but also have it at least at some point become a little bit overextended, a little bit overloved, a little bit overbelieved. Nobody knows where that point is, though.
2: Now, I'm working on a hot take where Apple and Microsoft reverse their roles from that famous ad. Uh, you know, once I downloaded the Outlook <laughs> right. app, Mike, and I'm raving it. Anyway... That might be a a bit ahead of itself, but here's what I wanna know from your brain. What stops this? These companies are worth a trillion dollars already. Are we going to 2T? Can the business model somehow suffer a blowback? Is it business cycle risk? Is it competitive? What could possibly stop these juggernauts?
1: I don't know if it's really a one-quarter stumble on the fundamental side that changes it, but it could just honestly be as simple as investor preferences shifting once again. Uh, All these dynamics that's getting people to love Microsoft for its cash flow yield and its buybacks and its, its dividends and all this kind of bond, you know, it's sort of a stand-in for a bond out there, it benefits from a low-yield, low-growth environment. If that all shifts, it really just could be, you know, a brighter, shinier object comes along, and on a relative basis, Microsoft uh, backs off. So it's very difficult to say, though, what exactly is out ahead of Microsoft that could change this story. And I think that explains why it trades at more than 30 times earnings, because sure. other people can't figure it out
2: either. So we just got to wait for higher rates along with everything else and that'll
1: yeah it would seem something like that all right the wait
2: continues mike great stuff thanks very much mike santoli at the nyse that does it for the exchange today you've been listening to the exchange make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day same time same place
13: this podcast is supported by fedex dear small and medium businesses no one wants happy customers more than you do so you need a business partner just like you